Hey, everybody. This is Jeff Shulman. And before we begin today's episode, I just want to acknowledge two companies who I am so grateful for investing in a more inclusive future. As you may know, one of the things I'm most proud about is partnering with Marty Burris to launch the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, a program that is empowering inclusion-minded professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product management role. And this started as a volunteer effort, and I'm so grateful that Starbucks was our first sponsor and T-Mobile is a platinum sponsor. Both of these companies are investing in this program that is not just broadening access to economic opportunity, but preparing the next generation of product managers from historically marginalized communities who care to build for everyone. So Starbucks and T-Mobile, these are two companies who it's a pleasure to work with who are investing not only their money, but their employees are investing their time and pouring it into a program that is building a family and preparing the next generation of product managers. So shout out to T-Mobile, shout out to Starbucks, and now enjoy today's episode. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers, but who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center, and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Shulman. I'm the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. And one of the things I'm proud about and is coming to fruition here today is that relative to other ways to learn about product management, we are rooted in an academic institution here in Seattle, surrounded by some of the best product companies in the world. And so we have an opportunity to blend the best from practice and industry, as well as cutting edge insights from academia and from researchers. And today, one of our guests is a researcher. She's a marketing professor at the University of Rochester, got her PhD at Stanford, Stanford Graduate School of Business. And she has some research that I found based off of all the conversations we've had, I found that this is going to be quite valuable to product managers. And so I'm excited that we have Christina. Welcome, Christina Brecco. Thank you. Really excited to be here. Glad to have you here. So excited that we have Christina, who's going to share some of her cutting-edge research. And we also have Sumeya Benganam, who is here every week. She's like the Wikipedia of product management and has an answer for everything and also a question for everything. So it's really, we're grateful that Sumeya is going to be able to engage in this conversation. And then we have another guest today, Spencer Hardwick, who is a senior product manager at Ticketmaster and a mentor in the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator a program here at the University of Washington. So that's our crew today, and we're going to talk about release updates and like whether you launch them as new features as updates or you hold them up and sell them at a higher price in a new version. So I'm going to quickly let Sumeya and Spencer tell them a little bit about themselves and their journey in product, and then we're going to dive into the research and just see how it jives with what Spencer and Sumeya have experienced in practice and let them ask questions. We're all going to learn a little bit from both Christina and our industry leaders here. So let's start with you, Sumeya. It's been a while. We had our hiatus. So in case they forgot, who are you? Tell us a little bit about your journey in product. Yes. Thank you, Jeff. Hi, everyone. I'm Sumeya Binganam. I'm a product management executive. <laughs> I've been a CPO and a product management person for almost 20 years. And I love the craft and the people who are involved in the building of products. A lot of my experience has been in B2B, so I am excited about today's conversation and always happy to see empirical data to support some of the stuff that we do day to day. Over to you, Spencer. Thanks, Sumaya. Hi, I'm Spencer. I am a senior product manager at Ticketmaster. I work in our enterprise pricing division, so I'm responsible for pricing data science, our pricing data science team, and our price master, the enterprise pricing platform. My background is actually from sales and customer success. So I started off as like a, like a pre-sales engineer, pre and post-sales engineer, did some account management, was lead CSM and like implementation manager for a little while, mostly startups. Actually, Ticketmaster is my first big company. I've worked at five different startups, two seed stage, two series A and a series C. So yeah, I'm really excited to hear a little bit about 
what Christina's research is and, and hear some perspective from Samaya and uh, the rest of the people on the call. So. All right. Welcome, Spencer. Thank you. So, Christina, I want to start first. I just want you to give us a little bit of the setting and what are the questions that your research addresses. And then before we hear what you find, we're just going to hear a little bit from Sumeya and Spencer about when they think about that same question that you think about in your research. So again, the setting and the research questions, and maybe a little bit about the data as well. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Just as a kind of a pre-introduction, let me just tell you a little bit about how I think about my own research, right? So I'm really interested in kind of core marketing questions, such as product design, pricing strategy. And really, like the way that I approach my research typically is to think about trade-offs that consumers face when they're making a purchase. So in this research, I'm going to be thinking about kind of intertemporal trade-offs, monetary trade-offs. And then I'm going to think about how does a firm policy influence those trade-offs and impact firm profits. So just let me give you the setting, as Jeff said. So in this paper, the setting is software company that is releasing new versions to its product and offering upgrades to these new versions for free. So it has subscribers on annual subscriptions and it's releasing these new versions and offering these upgrades for free. So imagine, right, you're using your software and you just see kind of a notification pop up that a new version is available. And so now you have the option to download it, install it, and now use the new features that come with that new version. But what's unusual is that they're free upgrades, right? So when we think about introducing new versions, we typically think about, okay, there's a way to make money off of this new functionality. But in this setting, we kind of see these free upgrades. And so the questions that I study is really when and whether does it make sense for a company to charge people to upgrade to the newest version of its product offering, right? So when do you want to charge a price and when do you want to offer it for free? And then the second question is, you know, when might you want to discontinue these intertemporal versions of a product altogether, right? So instead of allowing people the option to upgrade to the new version, either paid or unpaid, when might you move to automatic and free upgrades to the newest product version altogether, right? So in kind of pushing people onto the newest functionality as it arrives. And the second question is really motivated by something that we've seen happening in the software industry, but also broader, even in kind of durable product industry, where firms are essentially saying, hey, you need to stop using the older legacy versions of my product or my software and move on to the newest version that I've released. So we see this in kind of for instance, macOS does this, right? At some point, they essentially say you can no longer use the, what is it, like the Big Sur operating system. You're going to need to upgrade to the newest one. I actually had something like this happen personally where I was using an Amazon security camera that I had, you know, I'm using it for my kids, the webcam, and I had purchased it for our first kid and I was using it for our second kid and it was now quite old and Amazon kept offering me these promotions to upgrade to the newest version. And essentially, at some point, they said, look, we're no longer going to support this. And we're going to give you a free new camera. So please just move over to the newest version, right? And so essentially, the question is, when do we offer free upgrades? When do we charge for upgrades? But then also, when do we want to eliminate these kind of distinct versions that are coming out over time and just move to one product that gets continuously upgraded and you no longer, you as the consumer no longer really have the choice. When is it profitable for the firm to do these different things? So that's kind of the, an over, a broad overview of the key questions in the paper. All right. Fascinating. And I'm excited to hear what your research finds. But first, I want Spencer and Sumeya to kind of set that into their roles as product managers how much of this do you touch of what the questions that Christine is raising? And how much of this do you interface with somebody else within your organization to make these decisions? So that's kind of one way you could look at this, or you could just share a little bit about how your experience intersects with the topic here. I'll jump in with my perspective. So this question of value and attainment of it from a product manager's perspective, in return for a value you're delivering to your customer has this additional, you know, spectrum of evaluation around, you know, what kind of pricing structure you want to use, you know, the product you've provided in the past. Does it make sense for you to keep updating it and adding to it? And I think some of those questions are actually ones we take for granted, especially in the B2B space, especially when you have a, a large install base or a lot of enterprises already using it. The question of eliminating an old version and adding a new one, especially when you're talking about 
software on the cloud or SaaS, some of those questions go away. And that's a great benefit. I remember in the old days when we had to install software, this actually was a big concern. It's still something that enterprises think about overall when they're, for example, if they have security concerns, you know, in working with the U.S. government, that's a very relevant question. So I'm saying all this to say some of these questions of value and considerations around, do you discontinue? Do you continue? Do you price? higher, have a lot of factors that influence them, mainly not just your products, but also the market, the types of customers you have. Enterprise, for example, is notoriously known for, especially in certain areas, to be a price inelastic. So, you know, paying 100000 or 150000 is immaterial for a lot of large enterprises. But there are also exceptions to that. So I say all this to say, There are some high-level rules that we think about as PMs when it comes to pricing and evaluation of the market or even the strategy overall of the product. But I think what's going to be enjoyable about today's conversation is talking about the nuance because there are exceptions. There are times when certain things make sense, and I'm looking forward to that. I I agree with a lot of what Sameo is saying, right? Like, And they're really interesting questions, and some of them... You know, the context that you're asking them in, in typical like PM fashion, right? Like the answers kind of depend. It kind of depends on like what the space is and what you're talking about, you know? Like in, in my experience back whenever I used to work on a data quality product where the larger question wasn't like, do we charge for these upgrades or, or do we do these upgrades automatically? It's like, how do we get people to use it? You know, like you have data teams that have stuff in production. Once they have a version that's stable in production, they want to pin it. And they don't want to break anything. And so like getting them to upgrade to the new version was like a, a really big challenge for us, especially when, you know, the product that I was, was managing was an open source product, right? And we were building a cloud product, like a SaaS product on top of it. And the new version of the API that we launched would unlock functionality that the cloud product was being built on top of. And so we wanted users to be using that and taking advantage of it so they could see the value of it which would lead towards, which is sort of the definition of bottom up, right? So anyway, like the answers sort of depend. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. I think I'll learn quite a bit (laughs) from where this goes. And yeah, this is going to be great. Spencer, just a very quick clarification. The upgrade, for example, the cloud one, was it driven also by the competitive landscape or was it just customer demand? What were some of the main drivers there? Yeah, that's a good question, Samaya. We were in an interesting space because data quality and just data infrastructure, data, like the data engineering sort of space is sort of the wild west right now, especially from like a data quality, data observability sort of perspective. And so we didn't have like a direct competitor. We had people that were sort of adjacent to in the space, but nobody really doing exactly what we were. The major version update was... It was more about enabling certain functionality. So, I mean, without, maybe I'm tippy-toeing a little bit because I'm trying not to get super into the weeds, but the product that I worked on was a data quality tool. The idea being, you know, you've got data where it starts and you've got data where it's being used, you know, with like end-user data products. And in between, you've got like data pipelines. And so what a great expectation the open source product that I was managing before it does is it basically allows you to set checkpoints along those data pipelines to validate the data passing through is behaving the way that you would expect. And if it's not, it like lets you know. So it's kind of like unit tests. It's like software testing, except for applied to data pipelines. And so a big part of the API update that we did was providing like foundational functionality where that would enable to be able to reason about changes in data over time, right? So before it was sort of like batch based. So you would, you would only be able to look like, look at snapshot, like a snapshot of data at one time, but you couldn't really see how that data was changing over time. This new API update essentially like built the core foundation that you would need in the open source product, like built it into the code base to allow for you to essentially start asking questions about your data and how it was changing over time, which is a really core function of the cloud product. The cloud product hadn't gone to market yet. So this stuff needed to exist in the open source product for the cloud product to build on top of. And also our go to market motion was bottom up, right? So the idea is you have a, a groundswell of developers who are using this in open source and they realize that they can use the cloud, the enterprise product to do this at scale 
and you know just make it easier to put these things into production and maintain them. So does that answer your question? So sorry, real quick, what did you decide then? Was it charged extra? Was it launched as an update? Oh or? no, we didn't. We didn't charge anything. It was totally free. And actually, I think what I was getting at was is that like it wasn't for us. It wasn't a question of do you charge it or not. It's how do we get users to use them? Like how do we get data teams to unpen previous versions and use this latest version of the API? So that way we can demonstrate value and start building a path to our cloud product. Because if they left the previous version penned, they wouldn't be able to take advantage of a lot of the functionality that existed in the in the cloud product. Like they wouldn't see like how it changed their workflow, if that makes sense. Got it. All right. I'm curious, like in your case, was it a matter of them not being aware that this new version is coming out or is just kind of a hassle of getting it up and running? Because that's something that I consider in this research as well. And I'm just curious to hear you found to be the case. Yeah, it was a couple of different things. It was about them letting, like, it was about them knowing that it existed and also seeing enough value in it to be willing to unpen the previous version and update, right? Like, and I think that has, it's been interesting because like one of my teams now in my current company is a data science team that's building these sorts of like data infrastructures. So I'm like on the other side of the fence now, you know, once you have it working and in production, you don't really want to mess with it. Most data teams just don't really want to mess with it because data work is incredibly complicated. It's tedious. It's frustrating. It's confusing. It never works the way that you want to. There's all sorts of dependencies. It's a headache. So once you get it working in production, you don't really want to mess with it too much usually, you know, but if you're five versions out of date on the open source version that you have penned, it's going to be hard for you to see value in what the new version is doing and what it enables and, and even then be able to see the value or be willing to pay for a cloud product that sort of like does that and more. So part of it was a visibility thing, like letting people know that it, this is a thing that exists and then also like evangelizing why it's really important. But what we actually found was, it was surprising. We did some UX research and looked at some data and we essentially found that like Part of the problem was that users didn't fully understand how to even put great expectations into production in the first place. And that was the thing that they were struggling with the most. So we focused on actually making it easier to put into production. We basically built like a template that said, this is how you put great expectations into production with this particular stack. We started with GCP and, and BigQuery. And after that, we released the new version, the new API version uh, a couple of months later. And it had been available as experimental before for close to a year. Oh, I think we saw like less than 5% usage or something. We saw an 1100% jump in the new API adoption when we released it three months after we did the documentation that showed people how to put it in, how to put great expectations into production. So I, yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, it does. Yeah. And I think there's going to be some overlap with some of the findings. And so I'm really excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of overlap with the findings, let's dive in. Christina, do you want to share a little bit about what your research shows and how you show it? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, right. So basically these two kind of high level questions of, you know, when do you price upgrades? When do you just keep one version? And essentially, so what I consider are kind of both cost side forces and demand side forces that can favor upgrades, free upgrades to new versions. So starting with the cost side force, I think about, you know, you could imagine that maintaining multiple legacy versions of the product can be costly for the firm, right? So it can require potentially specialized workforce that can address different standards or backward compa compatibility. I think Sumeya touched on something related to kind of government users as well, where you might really think about security of legacy versions and that, you know, might be kind of an additional cost for the firm. And so that force alone can compel firms to discontinue maintaining legacy versions or introduce these free upgrades to try to get the people onto the newest or the consumers to the newest version of the product. But in my research, I find that actually the second force, based on at least what I find, is the more important force in my context. And that second force is essentially demand side factors. And those are related to some of the things that Spencer was just mentioning. So essentially to break it down, one common heuristic that we often have is that consumers who assign high value to the product or the core functionality of the product itself also have high value for the new functionality that we're introducing in the new versions, right? So the people that are kind of the heavy users or the ones that enjoy our product the most are going to be the ones that value that innovation that we're introducing in these new versions. So we essentially assume this type of correlation, right? And it's not just in the business context. It's also in like in the academic context. A lot of the models that we write down in marketing and economics have that implicit assumption where it's kind of the 
high willingness to pay consumers really like the new innovation. And, you know, in practice, we also see a lot of this being true. You know, if you think of kind of the Apple users that are dogmatic about the brand and really like the brand and for a long time, those were the people that would adopt the newest or, you know, buy the new phone as soon as it came out, right? They're sort of really excited. And so that correlation exists in certain contexts, but it's not always the case, right? So for instance, I like Apple products, but my phone is four years old. So I'm kind of like a legacy user at this point, but I might be a high willingness to pay person for Apple products, right? And so that's essentially kind of the first key finding of my paper. So the data that I use, so I'll set kind of additional context here. The software product here is kind of a personal use software product. So due to the data agreement that I have, I can't release the identity of the firm, but you can think of kind of like a single use product. Adobe Creative Suite is one example where it's, you know, that's similar, but not exactly perfectly aligned to the example that I have. But essentially the pattern that I see is that those people that are willing to pay a high price for the product itself, the core functionality of the product, they buy that product, they stick around for a long time. So they keep renewing their subscription to the product, but they keep using these legacy versions of the product, even though they have a chance to upgrade to the newest version for free. So it's a little bit like that example that Spencer was describing. You have this new version coming out and due to whatever force it is, you're just continue using the old version rather than upgrading to the new one that you know the firm really wants to push to you. And on the flip side, I also find that the folks that look for deals, so those that are low willingness to pay consumers, they actually like the new version. So they're more likely to upgrade to the newer version um, than keep using the older version. But they have low willingness to pay for the product. So that means that they have kind of other better alternatives in the market that they might prefer over to over the focal product that I'm studying. So essentially, they like the innovation, but they're more likely to turn away from the product that I'm studying. And so really, it's kind of the opposite of the correlation that we typically like that our heuristic suggests is there and that we typically assume. So it's those really high value consumers are actually just, they really like those old versions. They are kind of content using those old versions. And so then I try to kind of dig deeper and say, okay, so what's happening here, right? Because one hypothesis could be that those consumers who have high valuation for the product, they could be more busy or have a higher opportunity cost of time. So non-monetary terms, it might be costly for them to upgrade to the new version, right? So what I'm thinking about here is, you know, think of your own experience with upgrades, right? You might have like a nagging notification sitting around and being refreshed once in a while. But, you know, I might have a lot of processes running on my computer. I might not want to restart my computer. So I delay that upgrade until absolutely necessary, right? So that might be kind of one explanation. It was just costly for me to download and install it and integrate everything else that I'm doing with that new version, for instance. It could also be that maybe I'm just not aware. So in my model, I essentially classify all of that as non-monetary costs of upgrading. Somehow there's a friction that's there for me to update that new version of the product. Now, in my context, I actually find that this is not an important driver, whereas in other contexts, that might very well be the case. But I find that actually those high value consumers, they're not disinclined to upgrade to the new version generally. It's that they're not upgrading to the newer versions at the same rate as they're using those older versions. And so what I find to be the more likely explanation is that these high value consumers just don't like the innovation that the firm is introducing as much. They're really happy with the product that in the version that they're using and they just keep using it. They don't see the value in that newer version that's coming out. And essentially, if we go back to kind of my webcam example that I gave in the beginning, right? Sure. Like for me, it was sort of like, I just need a webcam for my kids. I need to keep an eye on them. And I didn't really care whether, you know, Amazon came out with a new webcam that did essentially for my purposes, the same exact thing. So I didn't really want to upgrade. I was just happy using my old product. Right. And at some point, the firm is going to ask the question of, you know, do I need to <laughs> really try to push that consumer onto that new version? And so essentially what that first finding says is that, yeah, those high value consumers don't value the innovation as much. And those lower willingness to pay consumers like the innovation, but they're likely to turn away from your product. They have better alternatives in the market. And so given this type of correlation, it's actually not optimal for the firm to price upgrades as a premium because those high value consumers aren't going to be paying a price to upgrade to that new product. 
this is kind of where I think the implications of this finding are a bit more general. So as I mentioned, I can't release the identity of the product that I'm studying, but it's a mature product market. It's a mature software product. And what that means is that they've sort of reached some plateau to the innovation. And I think what's happening is that, you know, they're introducing this functionality that maybe improves the look or the speed, but it's not necessarily super valuable to those core heavy users of the product. And this is where kind of my research ties in with some seminal research by Clayton Christensen that essentially says, you know, the innovator's dilemma, right? You can get trapped into introducing this kind of sustaining innovation that's not very disruptive and doesn't necessarily cater to your high value or to kind of the right consumer base and leaves the market kind of rife for innovation. Yeah. So essentially in product markets such as mine, I think, which is this kind of very mature market, this can be a more general implication as well. And Christina, is the product a B2B one or B2C Yeah, it's a B2C product. So it's you can think of kind of your single license user product. I love the context you brought up around the maturity of the market, because as you were talking, of course, as a lot of us PNs, I think we're a little skeptical and we're trying to think about all the different ways of looking at the argument. I was thinking about, oh, But what if the innovations they're releasing are not good enough, are not compelling enough? It's not because the user doesn't want to buy it. It's on the product team to make sure they're actually delivering the right thing for them. But the maturity of the market, I think, is a very, you know, it's a definitive thing. If it's mature and there is really no further innovation to achieve there, a lot of product teams then usually start thinking about adjacent markets or not even adjacent markets, just Uh, creating suites of their product to provide adjacent products to that same market. So there are multiple other ways people end up going that way. I'm curious if any of that came up in your research. Yeah. So actually the point that you make about the kind of the innovation that the team might be introducing is exactly kind of along the lines of what I'm thinking about. So I also consider a case where Okay, so in my case, right, I I find that, you know, the high value users don't like the innovation. And I consider a case where the firm is introducing innovation that actually the high value consumer likes. And then you can very easily see that they can charge a price for this upgrade. They might want to continue releasing these new versions of the product, but that's actually profitable relative to what they're doing now. But in my case, essentially, the innovation they're offering caters to the low willingness to pay consumers rather than these really core high value users, which I think, again, is kind of an interesting implication to say that. And by the way, I should mention that if the firm were to look on aggregate, right? So instead of kind of looking at core users who are the high value users, but looking on aggregate, the picture would look actually quite good because people on aggregate are buying these new versions of the product. It's just that the people that are buying them are the people that are more likely to turn away rather than keep using the product. And so on aggregate, it might look good, but there is room for optimization when you start looking at who are the people that are using the legacy version versus who are the people that are using the newer version. And so I also showed that, you know, if that pattern, if that innovation pattern was were different, then actually they would benefit from pricing these upgrades and making those high value consumers upgrade to the newest version. That was kind of to your first point that you had mentioned. (laughs) Thanks, Christina. Go ahead, Spencer. Really fascinating stuff. I'm wondering as part of your research, if you, did you come across ways of some, some interesting ways of like figuring out what those resistances might be or what those reasons might be, right? Like, because... You know, it's one thing to see what users are actually doing and what the beha- like what sorts of behavior are manifesting, you know, but it's also another to see like what are people saying also? And is that something that it, like is that behavior something that that's expected? I guess like was there any sort of like qualitative aspect of of the research that you were doing and anything that was like interesting from it? Yeah, I really wish. Unfortunately, I don't have data to, or, you know, like I wasn't able to run surveys or anything like that. That would be really awesome to see kind of what is that friction. Actually categorize that friction in some way, right? Because all I can say is that it could be made up of, yeah, again, like this awareness or maybe whatever that resistance might be, but I, I can't, I don't have the data to dig down deeper on that. It would be really great. Yeah. I mean, it's okay, right? Like the thing about data is that it's a really good starting point to try and understand 
what's happening because you know what people think that they do and what they actually do are usually two different things. And so being able to see what people are actually doing and what behavior is what user behavior is happening when you're trying different things or whenever you're doing different things is is really interesting. I just I asked because like one of the really interesting things that we found in, in my last role was that you know our primary persona was data practitioners. And we thought for a while that data practitioners were more or less the same. And I had a bit of a hunch that that maybe wasn't quite the case. And that was what prompted the UX research thing that we did. And what we found is that actually like data practitioners weren't all the same. It really depended on the nature of the organization and it aligned a lot more jobs to be done sort of framework. And so like, if it's, this is like a B2C sort of situation, it, you know, the context becomes a little bit different, but to your example with the webcam, you could, you could think about that from the perspective of the jobs to be done thing. Like, right. Like what are you hoping to accomplish with this particular thing and how does that change the, what you care about and the way that you interact with it? So yeah, it's, I, I just always think it's interesting, <laughs> like seeing why people wouldn't do something that would benefit them and like what sort of a rationality comes from. Where, where where that comes from, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Totally agreed. So just to give you kind of a, a little bit more context in how I approach the question, right? So essentially what I do is I'll write down a model and estimate these model parameters to say, okay, so for this type of consumer, let's say the high value consumer, you know, how much do they value these new versions that are coming out? And also how big is that friction to upgrade to the newest version for that? high value consumer and the same thing for the low value consumer. And then as I remember kind of the second part of my question is to think about, you know, when does it benefit the firm to just discontinue these versions altogether and you know make push these all of these consumers onto the newest version of the product. And so as a second part there, I can then make assumptions about how much of that friction might be incurred. Right. So if I do find that some type of consumer just has a really big friction to upgrade, and that might be due to, like, if that's due to awareness, right? So if the firm then makes these upgrades automatic and pushes everybody onto the newest version, then that awareness friction won't be incurred when they push the consumer onto the new version, right? Because it's it's sort of like, well, they weren't aware before, but now the new version gets rolled out automatically to everybody. And that sort of, that friction just goes away, essentially. But on the flip side, if that friction is something like actual resistance, right? So it's somehow it's a lot of hassle for me to upgrade to the newest version. And so I don't like, I actually just don't like having to use it. Then if the firm makes these upgrades automatic, then actually that friction is going to be incurred for the consumer. And so essentially like what I do is I say, okay, so I estimate the parameter on this friction, like how large that friction might be. And then I make different assumptions of, if let's say all of this friction cost was incurred, all of this hassle cost was incurred, what would happen? And if none of it was, incurred, say, if all of it was actually due to awareness, what would happen? In my case, at least, it turns out that it's actually still optimal for the firm to make these upgrades automatic in both cases. If it's awareness or if it's an actual hassle that consumers incur, it's still optimal for the firm to make these upgrades automatic. But again, this is in this mature product market that I'm that I'm studying, and it might be different in others as well. So that's really interesting. And, and Samaya, I'm, I'm curious to see if you have like, uh, if you think that this would be similarly useful in your space. So like, Christina, do you feel like there's a way to like weight the friction, like the potential for friction with these different, like, I guess, I don't know, you assign them by personas or something. So like, what is the likelihood that this group of users would have friction and is there a way to like quantify the amount of friction that they have so you can sort of so you can sort of compare and get a sense of like like i can imagine if you could do that you could you could also sort of like like what's the amount of friction you're willing to accept as a business you know and then and then sort of weigh that against the alternative does that does that question make sense yeah, so I can tell you, I guess, how I go about, essentially, how I go about identifying the size of that friction, which is to say, I see the firm introducing versions over time. So I see like four different versions being over introduced during the time period that I study. And these are annual versions or annual upgrades, right? And so I see some average rate of, you know, these high willingness to pay consumers upgrading to the new version. And then I compare that average rate to how that rate changes with each version. So there's some average rate of upgrading, and then there's some average uptake for each different version among these high value consumers. 
And so that average rate of upgrade is going to give me the friction. So if they're not upgrading a lot, that means that there's a lot of friction for them. But these new versions, kind of the difference between the different versions that are coming out is going to give me the valuation of each additional version. So that's kind of like the nutshell of how I identify it. But yeah, it, you know, you want to you want to kind of disentangle is it kind of the just a general dislike of upgrading or is it kind of valuation for the different versions that's different for these different consumers? Yeah, similarly, I think in a lot of the strategy discussions we we have, let's say annually or quarterly, you know, you bring in a lot of data. It's not just your ARR, for example, for SaaS, but also your LTV. And so when we're talking about customer segments, a high value customer, I'm actually curious about the definition of that in Christina's research. I think it might mean different things in different industries, different contexts, different types of products, and then the least valuable ones, and then like that middle curve of maybe the majority of of actually where your customers lie. And understanding, you know, basically what it boils down to is where is our revenue? How much are we able to spend from that in developing new capabilities, new innovations? And then is our customer basically going to be able to fund that? And if the answer is no, or the size of the commitment required, for example, to continue supporting something that has a lot of security issues or is very old. Just a side note on that, for example, if you Microsoft has a page that they update almost every week with products that are going out of support. Everything from this add-on to SharePoint for Visio to smaller ones. And so it's part of a healthy product situation to be constantly analyzing your LTV, your CAC, your revenue, your everything together and making decisions around when does it make sense to build more or not at all. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, I'm kind of in my case, I definitely, I agree. Like, you, you know, even in this like very small not small, but like very specific example, right? It, it's worth considering not just kind of the revenue that's coming in uh, from these consumers, but also how costly it is for you to keep these versions around in on multiple dimensions, right? From the security to servicing, et cetera. You had asked the question in the beginning, oh yeah, yeah. So how, how I define the high value consumers, that's really worth kind of pinning down how I think about it in the research, right? So in my case, I see there's like a fairly fairly clear split between consumers who are deal seekers, essentially. So they will only buy when the price is fairly low versus those that are kind of buying at a relatively high price. And so that's how I define these high value versus low value consumers as I talk about it. It's, it's, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's essentially what it boils down to. And so what I see is that essentially those people that are the high value in that they pay a high price for the same product are going to be the ones that don't that keep using the legacy versions and those that are the low value and that they like only buy when there's a deal when there's a fairly big discount are the ones that are using the newer versions of the product and upgrading and so that's kind of the the correlation but i do want to mention kind of that last bit last finding which is this notion of you know when might a firm should this firm in particular in this mature product context where they know that their high value consumers actually like the legacy versions. Should they discontinue support for these legacy versions, essentially, and push everybody to the newest version of the product? And the answer in my case, kind of not intuitively necessarily, is yes, right? So these high value consumers like the legacy versions, they're content using them. They don't want to upgrade to the new version, even though it's free. But even so, it's optimal for the firm to discontinue support, as Samaya was pointing out, right? Discontinue support for these legacy versions and push them onto the newest version of the product. And really, the reason is, is because they still see a lot of value in the product itself. Sure, they might not like the newer functionality that's being introduced in the newer versions, but that delta is not big enough for them to discontinue using that product. And so it's still kind of neat, right? So we still have, it kind of gives the solution to the firm to say, Sure, the legacy users are high value users, preferred these old versions, but we can still move them onto the new version and not lose them, not have them turn from our product. And on the flip side, the low value consumers are actually quite happy with that because now they have access to a product that they're going to 
like increasingly more because the innovation path of the firm is just catering to them essentially. And so it's better for on both fronts for the firm in that way. All right, Spencer, I see you come off mute and I apologize, but I know you have a question, but we also have an audience and the thing that we love to do is to give them a chance to ask a question and we give Red a chance to shine because he he doesn't really like that. He hates it when I say it's all about him and giving him a chance to shine. But Red, without you being here and having audience questions, we wouldn't have a chance for me to say, are you red E to do your thing? You know, I'm only unmuting because if you would have kept going, it would just been <laughs> unfortunate for the audience. We've actually had somebody raising their hand from almost, uh, I think, 10 minutes in, Chandra. But uh, if you could bring them up on stage, we just have a simple rule. If you come up on stage, keep it short, keep it a question. Or if you have advice to offer, keep it less than a minute and let's jam on it. So Chandra, I can't see your photo. I just see two concentric, well, it's like vectored circles here. So you might be an AI, you might be chat GPT in another form on LinkedIn. But whatever the case, you are a product manager by title, and we invite you to ask a question. So the stage is yours, my friend, and thank you so much for sticking around as long as you have. So if you hit unmute, there you go. Ask away. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So I'm Chandra. I'm a data product manager. One of the things that really got me interested in the conversation was why do some users choose to upgrade versus why do some users choose not to upgrade? I kind of, you know, came about this situation a lot in my career. And one of the things that I've noticed is is basically nostalgia and familiarity. This is something that really sits hard with some of the users. And I find that that is something always a key difference between why some users are actually willing versus why some actu- some users actually make that action. So that's it. I just wanted to mention that. I appreciate that. Uh, Samaya, I see you come off mute. Jump on in. I don't have an answer. I imagine Christina will have some insights here. But I I love this element of psychology that sometimes we don't remember, but it comes through in our customer research or in our conversations with the people when we do the actual UX research. I think there is that element of nostalgia. There are a couple of other ones. There is also people who have been, for example, successful at their jobs by doing one thing. They A lot of times they resist moving to something else. I've seen it, for example, in executives that build software. And then there are a hundred reasons why that software needs to be changed and they refuse it, even though it's ra- they're rational in every other place except that one. <laughs> you see it in other places where there is a specific bias towards the interactions. So, for example, you know, older UX interactions around drop, drop-down menus versus swipes, etc. And so the innovations are not commensurate necessarily with what they consider valuable, although UX is very much valuable to certain demographics. Others don't. So, yeah, the psychology piece is very interesting to me here. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. And it, it makes sense, right? You get used to using a particular version a particular way and you know how to derive value from that product really well. And so the new thing gets introduced, even with the UI being a little bit different, it makes things more difficult for you. And yeah, in kind of applying it to my research of this paper, that version valuation, I essentially view it as like a vector product of all of these things that can make up your valuation of the version. So it could be something like that. I'm not able to observe exactly which dimension people value, but it could be something like this, where it's just the, you know, the fact that the way that you navigate through the product is different. And so now that becomes just more difficult for you to use something like that. No, this is perfect. You know what? Let's go for a hat trick, folks. We want the Kraken to go all the way, just like we want these uh, trio over here to go all the way. Before we go to our next speak uh, question, Spencer, I saw you come off mute. What about you, my friend? How would you like to weigh in? Oh, I just, I, I think the psychology piece is really interesting too. That's sort of what I was getting at with the UX research part of it is to try and just like dig into why, like why you're seeing this sort of behavior, why people might have friction where they do, what sort of drives them. And compare that to the data that you're actually seeing that Christina's talking about, you know, so you can have a, having like a balance of qualitative and quantitative data to really try and understand like what somebody's going to do and what the impact of the decisions that we make in product is going to have and really be really thoughtful about that because 
I think we, we could probably spend an entire hour just talking about examples in business where that goes wrong because that wasn't considered. So, Well, you got a digital clap from Chandra, so that's a good sign. And also, you bring up a really good point here. I'm carrying over some feedback from a research that took place in the sales world, not in the product world, but I'm curious if it crosses over the idea of FOMO versus FOMU, right? People don't want to go to the new thing because their fear of messing up. Like, I love the legacy. If I click to upgrade, is it going to work the same way? I don't know. And then there's FOMO, which is I don't want to miss out on the new version. I'm going to upgrade. And FOMO and FOMO is a psychological matter. I don't think empirical data, quantitative data can answer it. It has to be a qualitative study, and that's very expensive. And yeah, <laughs> luckily, salespeople record all the sales calls. I can't say that all the keystrokes of product uh, and product interviews might go through the same volumes of research. Just borrowing from another industry here. I don't want to give any FOMO for our another friend here. So Chandra, we're kicking you off stage into the land of good luck. And please connect with us and let us know if we can be of assistance to you and appreciate your question. We got Sri Ram on stage. Sri Ram, this stage yeah. is yours, my friend. We're cutting uh, towards the hour. The stage is uh, yours. Wonderful. So I have a statement to make. I have been in this field uh, from the early 90s, and we talked about upgrades and why certain people would not want. And I'll give you my perspective. Word 98 solved all my problem, and nothing that has come after that is useful to me. So from my perspective, I don't need to upgrade at all for the last 20 years because I do simple word processing, and that serves my purpose. Like I don't need any fancy stuff. I'm not doing some graphics. I'm not doing any graphs. I'm not doing any image. So I don't need any of the new features. So what Microsoft or any company does is they have this product release cycles. They have a bunch of developers working. They need to churn out a product and they need to sell the product and they force me to upgrade. I don't want to. So the perspective is if you really have a value add, you know, you know, I will upgrade. And if you are not, if you are even value adding, have a light version, have word light or something like that, that is for a very basic users. And, you know, people thought that nobody could beat Microsoft Office and, you know, Google came with a very simple, you know, web-based word processing and people went to it because Word had become a behemoth of, you know, so many features that only minuscule people were using all the features. Majority, 90% of them were of them were using only 20% of the word features. So just an example, I have nothing against Microsoft. I am myself, I ex-Microsoft, Microsoft-y, but the idea is give me an opportunity to upgrade, add value to it. That's my rant. Thank you. I got to say, I thought you were going to say Clippy at some point in there. Like if you want to get people to upgrade, you just throw Clippy at them. And that's, that's the, no, no Clippy fans? Uh, not, not really. <laughs> Love Clippy. <laughs> but Saram, seriously, if you were to tweet out the advice you just gave, I think that it hits home and I want to get some feedback on this before we close out with thoughts. What would you tweet to the world about, you know, if you had to distill down the, the feedback you just gave? Because that's a, many years of experience right there. I will upgrade only if it is useful for me. Don't force me to upgrade because you have a thousand people developing the next version of the great software. You know, show me the value. Show me the value, not show me the money. Which, uh, Christina, not to sum up, but there is a time where the business says, I have to do this for my business to stay alive, and the majority of my customers want it. But Saram is talking about a completely different category, which is, we spent all this time doing it, so I guess we might eat it. It's like, you know, when it's dinner night, it's Thursday night, and we throw everything in the fridge into the pot and say, well, it's kitchen sinks. We worked on it. We might as well take it down. I can tell you right now, uh, my home audience isn't exactly a fan of that, although I eat everything. Why are we talking about my dinner habits? I don't know. But Saram, thank you so much for jumping on stage. And you know what? We got time for some closing thoughts. Unless, Jeff, you want anyone to weigh in on that last comment from Saram. No. I'd love to get some feedback. Let's do some closing thoughts. We are out of time. And I'm starting to get hungry thinking about all the things in your fridge and how I could put them together for a lunch. So, Well, my developers worked really hard on it, so you have to eat it. That's you're going to force me to eat it. I see. I see. All right, let's go with Samaya first, and then Spencer, and then we'll end with our academic expert here sharing the cutting-edge research. So concluding thoughts, what do you want to leave the audience with? I'm going to take the optimistic lens on, on this conversation because that's why I am in this world, and I know a lot of us are, and that's to deliver value to our customers. I think the definition of value is something that can be different to different people, and that's okay. 
I think the world is big enough and the options out in the market are big enough for us to be able to address all those different desires of value. I think for us as builders of products, keeping our customer and being obsessive about what their needs are is the most important thing. And if we think we have reached the point where we cannot deliver any meaningful value, but we still need to support the product, then those are the times for the really hard conversations. And how do you make those decisions? I think that's something we should probably talk about a little more. But as long as you keep your desire to make your customers successful, I'm optimistic about all of us building the right products for our customers. Yeah, absolutely. You took the words right out of my mouth, Samia. Like, get really obsessed with your customers. I think my big takeaway from this is just to double down on, like, really, really understand our users and our customers really care about where they're coming from. Use data to try and understand, but then also take the time to understand their pain points and have the right conversations to really understand the impact of the decisions that we make. And just be really thoughtful about it because a big recurring theme has been the answer to how to approach this really sort of depends and it's going to be unique to your company and your market and your users and you know and so yeah this is really interesting though thank you spencer and now christina what would you like to leave the audience with yeah i guess i agree with everything that Sumay and spencer have have already said um i think from my research kind of the three big takeaways i mean at the broad level the first one is that you know intertemporal, like kind of this versioning activity is not always better. So we really have to be thoughtful about it. And that's very similar to what Samaya and Spencer said. And really kind of the key thing that I find is that you need to kind of pay attention to segment specific behavior and not just overall behavior. So the valuable consumers, what are they doing? Have a really good understanding of what are the frictions for those people and how are they valuing the innovation that you're introducing? And the last kind of related but distinct point is, you know, you want to pay close attention to who you're attracting with your innovation, right? So another alternative, right? So in my case, at least, the firm is innovating in a way that's attracting low value consumers and they're churning really quickly. But another alternative is that if you're innovating in a way that you're really valuable consumers like, well, then you might be able to actually introduce this innovation and then price it at a premium. And so there's different pricing strategies that go with different innovation paths. And so as long as you're thoughtful about who is adopting your newest version and who you're attracting with your newest version and how these different segments are behaving, that's where kind of you can do your best. That's kind of the three insights that I see from, from my own research here. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you, Samaya. Thank you, Red. And thank you to the two people who joined us on stage to ask questions. And thank you all for listening. Today's conversation really highlights what I'm really excited about the Product Management Center is that we are uniquely positioned to bring the best of the best from across academia, uh, across different disciplines, and together with some of the best of the best in product management and product leaders. And so we're going to do this all again on May 12th and 13th here in Seattle, we have the Inclusive Product Management Summit, and we are going to have leaders in product management. We're going to have professors from different schools here at the University of Washington, potentially with different professors across the world, but we're going to bring them together, and we are going to give you, those of you who are able to come to Seattle, give you an opportunity to learn about best practices of how to succeed in product management, developing innovations that are inclusive to diverse audiences, and empathizing and and working with stakeholders in an inclusive way. You're going to learn how to achieve traditional success metrics, but also a success metric that I also think is worthy in its own right. Just do people feel heard, seen, and invited in your organization and with your technology that you prioritize. So hope you join us for the Inclusive Product Management Summit here in Seattle, May 12th and May 13th. And thank you again, Christina, Spencer, Samaya, Red, and our guests uh, who asked questions today. We'll see you next week. Take care, everybody.